Father God, we love you. We adore who you are, who this book says you are. And we desire as we begin to move through um, the rest of uh, the first part of uh, the book of Colossians, Father, we desire that you would come to us and be with us in this place. The greatest need of this hour right now is that you'd be here with us, Father, that you'd put me aside, that you'd put distractions aside, and that you'd speak from your word into our hearts, that you would glorify and exalt your name so that we would see you as you really are. So I'm asking and pleading with you, Father, that you'd be gracious and do that, that you'd move in such a way um, that this truth would be pressed into the depths of our souls and that it would become something that we love and embrace and worship you for. And so as we spend the next few minutes digging into your word, I pray that your glory would shine brightly through these words in scripture and that we would respond in joyful adoration of our King and all that you've accomplished in reconciling all things to yourself. We give you glory, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, we are coming off of, if you've been here for any time in the last five weeks, the great heights of the Christ hymn in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. And we are entering really what is now the front door of this epistle. Um, Everything else has been kind of a preface to what Paul is getting at and what his main argument for the church is in in Colossae. But before we do that, we've got a section of about 15 verses here um, that we'll be engaging over the next uh, few weeks where Paul explains his ministry, his purpose to the Colossian church. And this is important and significant because it helps us contextualize his great concern around his main point for the epistle and around our lives. And uh, we see in this passage here in the, the coming weeks that he loves this church. He absolutely loves this church, even though he's never seen most of these people face to face. He loves them and he wants them to know Christ. He wants them to be found in Christ. And so we get these words, as we move down the mountain of Christ's preeminence in the Christ hymn, starting with verse 19, we get these words. For in him, that's Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I would like to begin our our time together today actually just focusing on those four words that, that I said. He has now reconciled. And I want to just for a moment at the beginning of our time today celebrate that. God's accomplishment in this text is past tense. It has already happened, and we need to feel that and appreciate that for what it is. It is amazing. It is incredible. There is real 
joy to be had at the very beginning of this by just recognizing that God has now reconciled. He's already done this. All the good that is coming to us from God has already started to make its way towards us from the cross. There's nothing we do to cause it to come from the cross. It's already headed to us because he has reconciled us. And in fact, for those who are in Christ, it's already ours. Um, But I'm going to be honest with you. This text, verse 21 in particular, has some very hard things to say about us, about who we were before we encountered the gospel, about who we were before we came to faith in Christ. And we will be going into, for a portion of our time today, very deep waters of Scripture, very deep waters about who God is and His character. And I'm not going to lie to you, there's heavy stuff. I will never, I will never keep heavy stuff from you um, or patronize you that, that it doesn't really exist or try to domesticate it. It's in the text, it's in the Scripture, and we're going to reckon with it. Um, but I want to spend just a few minutes at the beginning, at the outset here, set our anchors deep in this. I want to revel with you in this. He has now reconciled. He has already done it. The cross was 2,000 years ago, and everything that happens in this building happens because of that event. His achievement and his accomplishment is something we live out of. So Colossians 1, 13 through 14, which we looked at in December, if you guys remember, it says this, he has, God has, delivered us from the domain of of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins paul says god has already delivered us from the domain of darkness he has redeemed us he has forgiven us and you and i if we are in christ if we trust him are completely and entirely forgiven now these acts that are seen in this passage here, his delivery of us from the domain of darkness and his redemption of us, the forgiveness that we receive, these are all descriptions of the event that's called reconciliation. Two weeks ago, we looked at this a little bit, um, and we'll be looking at a little bit more about it today. We are reconciled because of what's accomplished in this verse. The delivery from the domain of darkness transferring of us into the kingdom of his beloved son and the forgiveness of sins that we receive to make that happen. Now, when we were going through the Christ hymn, the second part of the Christ hymn is entirely focused on this reconciliation, this act of reconciliation. And we have to ask the question, why? Um, And like I said, two weeks ago, we we looked at this. We're going to stress some different aspects of it today. But what is Paul saying about God reconciling all things to himself in the Christ? And what is his focus? What is his purpose and design in telling the Colossian church that? After telling us in verses 13 and 14 about being transferred from the kingdom of his beloved son, Paul, as he's writing this letter, led by the Holy Spirit, no doubt recognizes that he probably needs to contextualize a little bit here. He needs to explain who this beloved son is. Do you know him for who he is? And that's the entire purpose of those five verses that are the Christ hymn. Paul is trying to communicate the means by which the Colossian church 
and us 2,000 years later, and every Christian since then and now, um, all of us, how do we be reconciled to God? That's the, the emphasis of those last two verses in the Christ hymn. And so he is spending five verses in that hymn saying, here's the son that you've been reconciled to. Here's the reality of Christ Jesus. We spent five weeks on it, so I'm going to do a really brief recap so you get the feeling of Paul's argument. He is pressing into the glory and the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ. He's saying Jesus Christ is the eternal God in the fullness of or the fullness of God dwelt in him. His, he is God's glory displayed. He is also the creator and the sustainer of every single thing that exists. And he reigns over creation. But that isn't the most amazing thing about Jesus Christ. That he created and sustains everything is not the most amazing thing about Christ Jesus. There is something more amazing. And the Colossian church, when this letter was read to them 2,000 years ago, and us should be saying, wait a second, what is more amazing than having created all that exists in the universe and sustain it every single millisecond? And Paul's answer to that question would be reconciliation is more amazing. What God did through Jesus Christ is way more amazing. Christ Jesus created and holds together the entire universe by the word of his power. Every millisecond, the universe is held together because he decides to and he speaks it into being. Hebrews 1.3 says that. But when God determined to reconcile us to him, it took more than merely speaking. It took more than mere words. When we get to reconciliation, there is more that's needed in order for, that, for us to be reconciled. Redeeming humanity, as verse 14 says here, will actually require God to do something other than speak. God will have to act, and he will have to enter human history in a profound way. And what this should tell us is that he created all of this and sustains all of this because he speaks. He enters into human history to save us. It should tell us, or at least give us a faint concept of the profound magnitude of need that each one of us has for him to have to enter into human history to do it. And so how did he do it? How did God reconcile all things to himself? Colossians 1.20 tells us very simply, by making peace uh, by the blood of his cross. By making peace by the blood of his cross. That's how the, the Christ hymn closes. Those are the last words of the hymn. Reconciliation for human beings and for all things is achieved by God making peace through the cross. God, through his beloved son, Jesus Christ, makes peace with all that's been estranged from him. And now, after this point, in verse 21, Paul pivots and he immediately engages why the reconciliation is so important to the Colossian church and why reconciliation is so important to us, Risen Hope. 
How did this reconciliation impact them? What does it mean for us individually that God has reconciled all things to himself? The reason Paul says this is over the next 15 verses, he desires to illustrate and explain his ministry as the ministry of reconciliation. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 refers to this as. This is what he's been tasked with. And in some way, shape, or form, the Colossians and us are not passive observers. We're not on the sidelines. We're not on the benches. We are part of this ministry of reconciliation. Paul doesn't want this to be a theological concept that floats over their heads. He wants them to recognize that you are part of this mission right now. He wants them to feel the weight of the burden that Christ and that Paul has for this world, that it would be reconciled fully to God. And so my prayer for the next few weeks as we press into this text deeper is uh, really twofold. Um, First, it's that God would show us all how incredible it is, how amazing it is that he has reconciled us to himself. And we'll see a part of that today. But secondly, my prayer is that, and this is the bottom line for why Risen Hope exists, is that we would all, all of us, every individual here, would become conduits of God's grace in the communities that we live in for the purpose of him reconciling all things, including Kingsgate and whatever neighborhood you live in, wherever it might be, he desires to reconcile those people to himself and that we would become conduits in really Christ's hands and feet as he unravels the darkness that's in our culture and in our neighborhoods and in the families that live around us and the people that live around us. Reconciled people, reconcile people. Forgiven people are conduits of God's grace. Yesterday, actually a large chunk of the church spent a good section of the afternoon at Kirkland Heights, um, and it was amazing. It was amazing. So Kirkland Heights is a low-income housing community that's just down the street here uh, by 132nd, 132nd uh, Square Park, and um, lots of kids there. Lots of kids there who don't know Jesus and who need to be loved. And so we spent the better part of the afternoon. Uh, Paige was leading a team there, and it was an amazing time making Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day um, cookies with these kids. And Paige shared the love of Jesus Christ, both visibly, we all shared it, and she spoke about the gospel, and it was an amazing time. That's the ministry of reconciliation. You want to put flesh on the ministry of reconciliation? It's there. It's being among people who need to see the love of Jesus. And my prayer is that we as a church, all of us would step outside of the comfortable lives that we have in Kirkland, in the east side, and we would recognize that forgiven people are called to lay down their lives and their time and their energy so that other people would see this. Um, But first we need to ask today this. What does it mean that God has reconciled us? What did it cost for that to take place? What was, what was the, the, the length that God had to go to achieve that? And what does it mean for you individually? What does it mean for me? And in order to know that, we have to look at verse 21. And we have to engage Paul's diagnosis of us prior 
to encountering Christ, prior to encountering the gospel. So let's start with verse 21. It says this, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, God, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul is not pulling punches in his analysis of who we were. Listen to the words he uses to describe, as he's led by the Holy Spirit, what we were prior to encountering Christ. He says, we were alienated and hostile in mind, and we were committing evil deeds. That's the state of the Colossian church prior to encountering the gospel. That's everyone's state prior to encountering Christ Jesus. Alienation from God and hostility toward God, and that's heavy. That is a heavy indictment. But what's heavier is that the whole council of Scripture contends that this is, in actuality, the default and natural position of every human being without exception. This is who we are by nature. Ephesians 2 says this, speaking to the Ephesian Christians prior to their encounter with Christ, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says that this is our native state. We all once lived in those passions. We all carried out the desires of the body, and we were all by nature children of wrath. That's why he's saying, like the rest of mankind, he's closing the loop. He's making it very clear that there are no exceptions to this. This state, human beings, Paul is saying here, are born into a state of alienation from God, estrangement from God. We are born with a hostility toward God. That's what alienation produces and expresses, this native hostility, deeply rooted opposition in the human heart, body, mind, and soul to the living God. And just a few verses later, when he's describing the average Gentile unbeliever, Paul says this, Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, God's people, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Having no hope. There isn't a bleaker set of words. Having no hope, zero hope, We were born with dispositions, as hard as this is to hear, it's so critical, dispositions that fit us perfectly for destruction. And we were born in a 
completely lost state because we had no God. There was no God. From the moment we take our breath, there's no God in our lives or in our affections. He's not referring to a state that we grow into or get accustomed to. He's talking about this being the native state of humanity, a state we're born into. And if that wasn't enough, uh, Ephesians 4 is an even bleaker picture. Listen to this. I promised you we were going to get heavy. There'll be hope. Hang in there. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated, that word again, from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, So why is this a native behavior and not a learned behavior in this text? It's because their understanding is darkened. They cannot see the glory of God in creation. They cannot see the glory of God in the gospel, even if it's staring them in the face, because their alienation produces a darkened understanding. It isn't a matter of needing more evidence. It isn't a matter of the scales tipping one day and saying, you know what, I've got enough. I've got enough. Romans 1 says everyone has enough by just looking at the sky. (laughs) What's happening here is that Paul is saying at the root of their darkened understanding is the real cause of the darkness, and that is a hardness of heart. It is a desire issue. It is an affection issue. It is a love issue. What severs someone from seeing and understanding the reality of God is not a lack of evidence. It's not arithmetic. It's not science. It's not what's being taught in schools, no matter what your opinion is on it. That isn't the chief problem. The chief problem in the world is the darkness that comes from a hardness of heart and affection that is like, I I think I'm better off without God. To people who are in the darkness, of course, it's going to be anything, any amount of evidence, but underneath it all is something else. It's the hardness. It's effectively a heart that looks at the glory of God and says, I'm disinterested and bored in that. Or, I'm offended by it, and I will not have the glory of God. And this is what has severed people from seeing God. And now he says, because of that, you are led by your passions. You commit evil deeds, like Colossians 1.21 says. And I think we're tempted sometimes, even as Christians, to stop there, especially as Christians, and say, that's the problem. The evil deeds are the problem. If we could just stop people around the world from committing evil deeds, we'd be okay. Whether through legislation, whether through governance, whether through counseling, or whether just making Christianity look really cool and fun. But we have to understand here, none of that actually matters at the end of the day. Hearts need to change. The evil deeds are not the main problem here. The main issue here isn't the world's unrighteousness to moral systems or even God's law. That's not the main issue. The main issue is ungodliness. There's a distinction between these two. One, unrighteousness is against a moral framework. We don't want to be righteous. We don't want to live to that standard, which is sin. But the main problem here is ungodliness. It is saying, I don't want to love or have any affections for God at all. 
And so people committing evil acts is not the main thing. The main thing is a rejection of God and it alienates them from the life of God. And it has tragically put them, put all of us on a collision course with the justice of God. And that's what Colossians 5 through 6 tells us. Paul, and we'll get to this text eventually, says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Kill it. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And he says, on account of these, all of those, the wrath of God is coming. Now, first notice this. Notice how Paul lines up these evil deeds, and then he ends with covetousness. He ends with coveting things. Why does he do that? What is covetousness? It is desiring what is not yours. It is desiring what you do not have a right to take or what you have been told not to take. That's what covetousness is. And which, interestingly enough, if you think about it, it's really at the root of every sin. Every sin at the very bottom of it is a desire to do something, say something, act some way, um, or take something that is not yours and is therefore connected to coveting. And it's interesting here because Paul says that coveting is idolatry, which is idolatry. Coveting at the root of all of our evil deeds or sinning is, isn't something that happens with our hands. We don't covet with our hands. We don't covet with our feet or our mouths. We covet in here. The coveting happens right inside of us, and Paul says that's idolatry because at the root of all sin is a desire to dethrone God. All sin is rooted in this, and then he says at the end, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God. Now, some words exist in the Bible explicitly to make us uncomfortable with them. Some words exist in the Bible to make us uncomfortable with them and not like them. Wrath is definitely in that category. So what is wrath? Merriam-Webster defines wrath as a strong, vengeful anger or indignation. It is a retributory punishment for an offense or a crime. And here's the deal. God put it in the Bible. God actually desires for us to feel uncomfortable with it. That's the design of the word wrath. We are not to domesticate it. We are not to ignore it and work our way around it. Um, his design is for us to not want this word to be part of our lives and our reality. Colossians 3 says the wrath of God is coming because of these evil deeds. And, and Paul's not talking about a <laughs> general sort of wrath that Romans 1, for example, would talk about. He's talking about a specific thing in Scripture called an event called the day. The day. Which alone should be enough to scare the lights out, life out of us. Because what it says at the very least is that after all the countless days of the universe and its existence, 
there is at least one day at the very end that will define forever, that will define eternity. That day will be the end of human history. That day will be the end of all history, and it will represent the finality of God's patience and long-suffering and grace and love of this world in its current state. And if I can be real with you, talking about God's wrath does not, it makes me very uncomfortable. I do not like talking about God's wrath. Not because uh, I think people might not like me or might not care for someone preaching about wrath. There are folks out there, I'm sure. That's the least of my concerns, actually. I'm uncomfortable because it is real. It is not a game. It is a reality that is in this text, and it is the worst possible worst imaginable thing. You cannot conceive of anything worth, worse than this. There's nothing worse than the wrath of Almighty God. There's nothing conceivably worse than that, than an all-powerful, all-sovereign God being angry and furious with the, the dishonoring of his glory. And so I'm talking about it first off because the text talks about it. Um, there's no way for us to understand. There's no way for us to understand what Paul means when he says, making peace by the blood of his cross if we don't understand why we need peace. Why it's critical that we get peace. Why did Jesus suffocate on a cross for six hours? Why did the Father, according to Isaiah 53, crush his only begotten Son? And why did Jesus, looking up to the sky before his death, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's one word that tells us why. Wrath. God's wrath. And if I'm honest, I love you guys too much to avoid or go around or circumvent something that I see in the text. And so we'll, pr we'll press on through it. The typical argument <laughs> against wrath, and I'm, I'm doing this mainly as a parenthesis to help us understand and frame it properly, is um, that God can't be wrathful because our God is a God of love. Our God, God, our God is love, in fact. And therefore, God can't possibly be even the least bit wrathful because wrath and love are, are against each other. They're set against each other. <laughs> and I would completely agree, obviously, God is love. Absolutely, consummately love. Um, Sandra's taken the, the ladies in the church through 1 John, and that is the, that's the main point. God is love, and it is a glorious truth. But my argument would be that the reason God can be wrathful and should be wrathful is because he is love and because he loves. No one who truly loves can live life without feeling or avoid feeling at any point in time wrath against the thing that he, or against the, the things that would dishonor his love. Um, they are tied together inexorably. Here's an example that I would use, and I could use both my children, but my son's here. I don't want to embarrass him, and uh, my daughter's back there, and I can embarrass her. <laughs> um, I love my daughter. I love her. She is my delight. Yesterday, we were watching a TV show. She snuggled up next to me, it was awesome. It was incredible. 
I adore her and I cherish her more than most things in my life and I would give my life for her in an instant without a question. But if I'm honest with you, if anyone ever harmed her, if anyone ever physically or physically abused her or violated her in some horrific way, and I'm being real with you, it would take a powerful act of God's grace in my own life to keep me from ending that person permanently. And I don't say that lightly. And obviously you should probably pray for me a little bit about that. Um, I'm obviously not perfect. God's still working on me. I'm being real with you for a, per, for a point here. Um, God would have to intervene because, not because I'm bloodthirsty or vengeful. I'm not any of those things. Um, it is specifically because I love her so much, because I delight in her so much that my response would be that way. I know that she should be respected. I know that she should be loved. I know that she should not be abused or hurt. And so in this example, my love is the source of my wrath. They're not disconnected. My wrath and and how I respond is in direct correspondence to how I perceive of her worth. And so take my morally justified anger, if it can be called that, and recognize that my daughter is wonderful and as amazing as she is, and she is wonderful and amazing. All of the characteristics which comprise who she is and everything I love about her, all of those attributes that I cherish, all of that is merely an echo of the glory and the worth of God. She is an image bearer and she has in some way the image of God shining off of her, and my delight is in that. It isn't in anything else but what she, he's already given her of himself. And so if I'm right to be enraged at the harming of my daughter, how much more is God right for being wrathful at the maligning of his infinite worth and beauty? the very source from which all of my daughter's worth and value originates is the very source from which all worth and value in the universe originate. That is God. The on, um, here's the thing. The only one who is both justified in defending his honor and truly objective in applying his justice is God. He is the standard of justice. And that means that when the Bible says vengeance belongs to the Lord, it really means that he's the only one that has rights to be that arbiter. The question of God's wrath isn't ever a question of whether or not God has rights to respond to his creatures this way. He has absolute rights, all rights. He made his creatures, he can unmake them, and he would have done us no wrong. The question that's at stake here is, is God actually glorious enough? Is his glory actually that valuable? In this book, the main argument is that it is. His justice and his wrath and his judgment are warranted. So before we shift gears, before we get into hope, and we're about to head there, so thank you for hanging with me, I need to just stress again, the greatest problem in the world, the main issue in the world, is not worldwide disease. It's not famine. 
It's not tsunamis. It's not hurricanes. It's not natural disasters. It's not global poverty. It's not the threat of global war. The main issue is not genocide as horrific as those things all are, and they are. The main issue, and I don't attempt to diminish them at all, the main issue, the greatest problem in the world here is that every human being on the planet right now is on a collision course with an event called the day. Paul says, the wrath of God is coming and there is only one hope. For in him, Colossians 1, 19 through 20, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul says we were once alienated. We were once hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But God, praise be to his name, has reconciled us. He has reconciled you individually. How did he do it? He made peace by the blood of his cross where there was only hostility before. The way that God achieved reconciliation was by his blood, or as verse 21 says, in the body of his flesh by, or a flesh by his death. The cross of Christ is the reason we have peace. So the question that should dominate our thinking for the next few minutes is this, simple question. What kind of blood is this? For it to be able to reconcile all things back to God. What kind of blood in the world could do this? What kind of blood are we dealing with? And I will let Scripture <coughs> speak for itself. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus, he also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other 
fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. The most precious substance in the universe is the blood of God the Son, the blood of Jesus Christ. It is of infinite value. There is no ceiling that can hold it in. Its worth is transcendent, immeasurably valuable. But get this. It was poured out for me and you. It was poured out for us, and it brought us peace. And so what did the blood of Christ achieve when it collided with our alienated evil deeds, our hostility? What did that blood do to us? When the blood was shed, what happened in the Colossians? What happened to us? Why did God do this? It says here in verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. This was done in order to present you before God, and it was done that you might be holy and blameless and above reproach. This means that the forgiveness of every single sin you've ever been achieved was accomplished by the blood of Christ. It was because of his powerful blood that you are now standing before the living God righteous, sinless, without any fault at all. But that's actually not the greatest part of this text. Being blameless on the last day, being righteous, being forgiven, is not the greatest part. It's not the best news here. That is only the instrument. That is the means by which we actually experience the fullness, the greatest part. The best part of this is that God wants you to be with him where he is. Did you hear me? God wants, I don't want you to think about anybody else in the room. I want you to think about your name on his lips. He wants you, the individual, to be with him. And this is rooted in God's profound and deep love for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Think of it. For God so loved the world, he gave. He gave. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God was the one that reconciled us. It says in verse 21, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. It is God who authored, designed, planned, and purchased our redemption, our reconciliation. It's because of his great act that we have peace. But I want to press this just for a bit because honestly, it's hard to believe this. We can say we believe it in our heads. It is hard to believe this, and some of you may not believe this at all. That the reconciliation that God achieved here was really accomplished like this verse was. All of God's redemptive work in this text, in this passage that we've been reading, is independent of our actions. 
It is independent of us. His work is completely outside of us. Do you see that? We didn't participate in it. The only thing we brought was alienation and hostility. It was outside of us. And the reason I'm laboring this is because it is so easy to think that we have a role and our role in this earns something. But it happened independently from us. Your faith in Christ right, right now, right now, this moment, your believing in him is a result of something that happened 2,000 years ago on a tree. It happened outside of us and it comes to us in the form of the gospel. And what that means is this. You didn't do it, and therefore you cannot undo it. It was an act of God, which brings us to where we'll close. Some of you, I believe, desperately need to hear this. God loves you deeply. He loves you individually, and he did not wait for you to fix things before he told you. That's what Colossians 1.21 says. That's why one tw- verse 21 exists in the Bible. God is making it very clear. He loves you in the middle of your alienation. He loves you in the middle of your hostility. He loves you in the middle of your struggling with evil deeds. He loves you. <clears throat> right now, whether or not you believe it, and God is not waiting for a more Christian version of you before he'll start loving you. He loves you right where you are. And he didn't reconcile you hoping that you'd become a better person, otherwise he'll move on. His reconciliation is what is going to make you into a better person. If you've truly tasted his love, if you've tasted the love of, of God in Christ Jesus, you will despise any remnants of hostility in you you will spend the rest of your life killing evil deeds. But you are reconciled to God. This is not your doing. It is a gift of God. God gave. Christ, listen to me on this. Christ died for you at your worst, at your absolute worst. And that means at the very least that you can never earn anything from him. You can't impress him and earn, your, earn his love because it isn't, he isn't interested in that at all. This reconciliation happened outside of you because salvation belongs to God and he will be merciful to whom he will be merciful. And he loved us not because we did anything, but because simply he loved us and he has achieved this, period. So if you trust in Christ and if you trust in the sufficiency of his work, then you've already been reconciled. You've recognized and embraced reconciliation that you already have with God. It was done on the day Christ said, it is finished. He bought all of you on that cross. Every ounce of you on that cross. Every day of your life was paid for on that cross. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of of man can ever pluck me from his hand. This morning as we take communion, please celebrate and worship the fact that Christ Jesus has reconciled you when you take the elements and embrace his body and blood.
But maybe for some of you this morning, you're not quite sure about Christ. Maybe you put on a facade that you believe or love him and you're not 100% committed. You don't feel like he's really worth any of your time. If that's you, I would like to leave you with just one passage, one more passage from the Apostle Paul. And this passage to me, I believe, clearly displays this fact. No one, no one, no one is beyond the arm of God. Not a single human being in the world. And the fact that you are hearing my voice, whether here or there, regardless, is to me objective evidence that he is now reaching for you. Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him. Uh, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled. That's when it happened. We were enemies when it happened. To God, by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, the the foundation of everything we do here, all that we believe, all that we hold dear, all that we cherish, is in that word reconciliation. To think that in the heart and the mind of God, from before the foundation of the world, He had us in his mind, and he loved us with his heart. And he has been pursuing us through human history. And we who live 2,000 years removed from the cross, Father, we get to experience the beauty of your word and the glory that's in the text, Father, but sometimes these words just don't, they feel so far from us. And what I ask, Father, is that as we contemplate the great realities that we've seen in the text today, and the major one being reconciliation, your reconciliation of all things, Father, that in worship and in communion, Father, you would press into our hearts the glory and the majesty and your grace and mercy to creatures who don't really deserve any of that. You'd help us feel and embrace your love and that that would do such a work in us, Father, that it would have such a transformative effect that we wouldn't go off and try to do good things or serve to earn your love, but we would do it as a reflection of the profound love that you've already given to us in Christ Jesus. That it would be an outgrowth of the amazing grace that you've shown us. So, Father, as we worship here over the next few minutes, as we partake in communion, I pray that you would press on our hearts your glory, your beauty, 
your wonder and we would worship that you redeemed us by making peace with your blood. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.